My topic today is the cry for answers. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We've been camping out in this passage for a number of weeks. And what we're learning is that people matter to God. And we're also learning that humanity is facing a huge crisis where society is almost as if it were insulating itself from hard questions. Questions that cause us to wrestle with doubt and skepticism and, and we then find ourselves being cynical and jaded. Oftentimes because we're just too busy and too indifferent to ask the real questions that are aching us. This is not new. The Apostle Paul tackled the same thing in his day. And verse 16 tells us, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Stop there. The Apostle Paul was tasked with the very same thing that you and I have been tasked with. How do we share Christ in a culture that seems to be disinterested? How do we share Christ in a culture that seems to feel as if God's irrelevant? Well, it stems, the answer stems from questions that we must pose to ourselves. And one of the questions I pose to myself, and I see it here in the text, not framed this way, but it's there, is this. Do beliefs matter? See, Paul was alone in the city of Athens. His traveling companions, you know, Silas and Timothy were not there yet, so he just looked around. And he was gathering information as he looked. Verse 16 tells us this in the message version. It says, the longer Paul waited in Athens for Silas and Timothy, the angrier he got. All these, all those idols, the city was a junkyard of idols. Paul was disturbed by the beliefs, the views, the values, the principles that the Athenians were hanging their life on. See, our beliefs become the foundation to how we act, how we do life together, or how we do life apart. Our beliefs become the foundation to our decisions, our worldview, our society, our form of government. Our beliefs shape everything. And so Paul, he recognized that to the question, do beliefs matter? Absolutely they matter. Now I want you to have a picture of Athens. Paul was there in the first century. And Athens was considered to be the place, the bastion of culture. 
In fact, what you see here are the relics of you know, the, you know, the massive temple of Odeon, of Agrippa. This is the place where they had the plays, the theater. And Athens, three to four hundred years prior to Paul's day, or three to four hundred years before Christ, it was the cradle for democracy. That's where democracy formed. That's where you find the major thinkers, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, and perhaps in the right historic order, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. That's where they lived. So when you think about the guys who are the brainiacs, the thinkers, that's Athens you'd think about because that was a place where oratory and architecture loomed. In fact, Paul, when he looked through Athens, he saw idols everywhere, even on the hotels. This is a structure that was, still remains today, and you can see the idols on it that depicted the thinking, the worldview, the values of the Athenians. And what you don't see, what I didn't show you, was some of the statues that were phallic symbols men's genitalia or women's breast and genitalia as they, 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 they adorn the landscape or should I say the cityscape of Athens. Paul was disturbed. His anger grew because these idols spoke to their mental state, the mental state of the people. It spoke to their beliefs. Verse 17 says, so he Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Notice that word I highlighted, reasoned. That's a word that speaks about being persuasive, getting into someone's thinking pattern, getting into someone's mindset. And you can't do it because you yell at them. And you can't even do it from a posture of preaching. You can't do it from a posture of enraged feelings. This type of communication comes from a heart place, a place of understanding and a place of love. That means Paul loved the Athenians so much that he found a way to, when he went to the synagogue, to reason, to talk with, to talk through, to help them see that their worldview, their belief system was really creating a lot of pain and would, would result in a life and a lifestyle that doesn't reflect the flourishing life that God had intended for them. And then he didn't use the same method of reasoning when he went to the marketplace, the city center. He realized that these individuals had different worldviews, different assumptions, different thought processes, different thinking. So he had to listen to their stories and find out what their reasoning was for idols and the proliferation of idols and why they believed in idols so much. And when he found also in their communication of their beliefs, their intellectual sticking points to why not believe in the one and true God? Why not believe in Jesus, the Savior of the world? And when he found their intellectual sticking point because of maybe flawed logic, there he intersected a perspective that would help them shift. So there are people that you have in your life right now, on your job, in your home, in your family, in your community, that God has tasked you to try to find out what they believe in and to help reason with them through their belief structure 
so they can shift from this place where they may have deified people or deified drugs or deified their own sexuality or deified humanity and, or deified money and get them to come to the place where they realize, hey, there's a need that you have, that sex, that money, that fame, that popularity, none of those things can fill up. And so Paul recognized that these Athenians, they had a moral problem because the idols, particularly the phallic symbols, represented their views. When you lack a moral code, it creates a disintegrated character. It keeps you fragmented. I don't know if you've been watching the news lately. What we saw, for many, alarmed us. We saw B. Smith and her husband, Dan Gatsby, some 30 years married. And B. Smith, for you who may not know, she's a famous model, a restaurateur, who is, and, and she's, you know, is involved in all kinds of public social things for many, many years. But for the past several years, B. Smith has been stricken with Alzheimer's. And this dreaded disease that causes people to lose their mental faculties and also as it, as it grows and intensifies, the person becomes unaware of their surroundings and even unaware of the people that they may have known for decades. And so during the early stage of this disease, Dan Gatsby says that when he and his wife had a conversation, she said to him, I want you to go on. In other words, live your life because my life as this disease eats away at me, I'm not going to have any kind of life. And so what Dan Gatsby did was then he has a girlfriend and the girlfriend's a living girlfriend and he calls this living girlfriend his life partner, you know, Alex Lerner. And so he and Alex Lerner, his life partner, they treat and they care, become a caregiver for his wife, B. Smith. Now, this has caused such anger in the broader society that there have been some death threats on Dan Gatsby. People are saying, wait a second, this is wrong. This moral outcry says this is wrong. And so he then goes around the circuit, the media circuit, the different TV program, the Dr. Oz, the View, and others to give his take to say, wait a second, I'm just doing what my wife said. My wife says, go on with your life. Now, some of you, just by you shaking your head, getting angry, I, 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 I know what you think. I, I polled my wife. I said, honey, you heard about Dan Gatsby. You know where I'm going. <laughs> I said, well, what, do, what do you think about that? <laughs> As if to say, do I have that kind of latitude? I do. All I felt was these long fingers around my throat. And, I just <laughs> and so <laughs> I almost didn't make it here today. But the, the idea was that this, there's this moral imprint on us human beings. Regardless of what you may say or what you may consider to be your religious worldview imprinted on us, there's this sense of justice and rightness and wrongness. I remember one of my friends who since had gone home to be with the Lord, he used to be a sociology professor, and he said that he did his doctoral dissertation among the, 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 some of the indigenous tribes along, along the Amazon River. And he went there. And, and so he said they'd never seen someone white before in their lives. 
And I didn't know their language, and they didn't know my language, and I, and I simply observed. And he said to me, David, one day, I was, you know, I was there just observing, and I heard this noise in the bush, and there was this man physically assaulting a woman. And then other villagers came, and they, and they broke it up, and then when I tried to question and queried them as to why this guy was doing that, and they said, he found his wife cheating with another man. I'm bringing out, not the focus on the assault, which is wrong. I'm bringing out, imprinted on the human heart, is the moral, moral call to when I'm violated, it hurts, even though no one has taught me the gospel. No one has presented me to, me to me what Jesus says we should do or not do, or the worldview that is, that is the Judeo-Christian worldview that the Bible espouses. The point I'm bringing out is that the, to the question, do beliefs matter? Answer, absolutely they matter. And if we don't know how to help our children frame their beliefs and be able to point them in the right direction behaviorally and philosophically and with their reasoning through things, then we're going to find ourselves creating a society in years to come that's worse than our society today. I'm not making light of Dan Gatsby's pain and the pain of having to take care of a wife that may not at times even recognize who he is. I'm not making light of that. What I'm bringing focus to is that our pain should still turn us to God. C.S. Lewis said, in reality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in the running of that machine. That is why these rules at first seem to be constantly interfering with our natural inclinations. And may I suggest this is why Paul started first with what they were thinking. He didn't say, you shouldn't have these statues. You shouldn't proliferate the cityscape with these emblems that are not God. Paul didn't talk about that from that standpoint, he started reasoning with them from where they were. Not where he wanted them to be, but where they were. And Paul said, wait a second, I've been watching and looking through the city and, and I see you guys have this statue and, and the placard reads to an unknown God. And so Paul then, he starts to speak to them about that very point. He starts there. And so I want you to see that when you have spiritual conversations with people, or even with your children, don't start from where you want them to be. Start from where they are. And get into their minds, into their hearts, into their framework. So when they start to reason, they're not, they're not doing things because you said, don't do this, do that, do this, do the other. No, people are not robots. And so when you get into their thinking, the question we must have in our thinking is this, do beliefs matter? Go to the core, go to the base, Go to the thinking, go to the assumptions, go to the presuppositions, and start from there. The next question that I see emerge from the text is, does God exist? See, Paul had something to say to the Athenians. He started with the beliefs that, I, I saw in the city center, you guys have this statue with the placard to the unknown, unknown God. He said, I want to declare that unknown God to you. 
In fact, verse 22, when they'd whisked them away to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, or to the council place where they're going to talk, the scripture says in verse 22, so Paul stood up in front of the council and said, people of Athens, I see that you're very religious. As I was going through your city and looking at the things you worship, I found an altar with the words to an unknown God. You worship this God, but you don't really know him. So I want to tell you about him. This God made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He doesn't need help from anyone. He gives life, breath, and everything else to all people. I love the wisdom of Paul. Let's take a play out of Paul's playbook. To reason, start on common ground. He didn't rebuke, didn't correct, didn't, you didn't lambaste, didn't scold. He says, you guys, I applaud you. As I looked through your city, I saw the placard underneath the statue to, the unknown, to an unknown God. I applaud you because you recognize that you didn't get here by yourselves. I applaud you because you realize that as powerful, as witty, as creative, as ingenious, as scientific as we human beings are, we didn't create ourselves. I applaud you guys because you have a religious orientation and bent. So I validate the fact that you believe in this unknown God. But he's saying, let's take it a little bit farther. He says, I want to talk with you about that very God. Now he gets into their thinking. He says, think about it now. This God who created the world and everything that there is, how could you, as a human being, create a physical emblem, icon, idol, to symbolize God? How could this be a good representation of God and then you worship it? I mean, it's, it, it, Paul's saying, wait a second, think about it. See, when you reason, you try to get into a person's thinking, get on their wavelength, try to track with them, try to you know, be able to flow with them. It's almost like surfing on the water. You can't just jump on anywhere you want to. You watch and you watch. It's almost like when the kids, little girls, when they're playing double dutch. I, mean, I never played, they're not a play, that has no rhythm, still have no rhythm. But when you see little kids playing double dutch, they wait for the right timing, right timing, right timing. Now. Paul, listening, watching, observing, taking heed, taking note, he says to them, you know, if God exists, what responsibility do you have towards him? See, in other words, he's saying, consider who God really is. He's, he's created the world and all that there is, and how could these idols that you create by your own creativity, by your own fascination, by your own wit, your own wisdom, how could they be God? See, Paul was using what you and I term today as the cosmological argument. Say with me, please, this fancy $10 word, cosmological argument. The cosmological argument, it comes from the word cosmos, the world, the universe. Paul was in essence saying that, wait a second, when you think about the world, the universe, it's so orderly, there has to be 
a divine designer behind all of that. Paul is pointing out that the world, it couldn't have formed accidentally, as Darwin later says, the Big Bang Theory. Because one of the big fallacies, if you notice now, atheists today, agnostics today, and in Paul's day, they were polytheistic, or they believed in many gods. Atheists today, they're trying to get a handle on their atheism, and so they say things like, it's unscientific to believe in God. How could you as a reasonable, intelligent person believe in God? It's preposterous, and so now they challenge you, and nobody wants to be dumb. No one wants to be foolish. No one wants to be unscientific. How could you? Come on. All we need is more science in order to understand whatever we don't understand today. In fact, one of the famous atheists, Stephen Hawking, this world-renowned atheist who, who, who sat in the Lucasian chair, was established in 1663. Lucasian Henry Lucas was a member of parliament and he donated a bag of money to Cambridge University, specifically the math department, that says, I want to give whoever gets, occupies this chair, I give a bag of money to, you know, as they occupy it so they can continue, you know, proliferating the world with their knowledge and intelligence in the area of physics and math. And so Stephen Hawking says, because there's a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch, that's an English word, the blue touch paper and set the universe going. So this atheist says, you know, you know, there's no God. And so what Hawking is saying is that, that if you think about it, he's pitting God against science to say that there's a fight, God, and since there's no God, science wins out. Now, I like to go back earlier and see who occupied that chair first. Sir Isaac Newton. He occupied the chair 1669. He's the one who discovered the law of gravity. Here's what Isaac Newton says before Hawking. He who thinks half-heartedly will not believe in God. But he who really thinks has to believe in God. So what we're seeing is that, I want you to understand. Come on, we can give a round of applause. Newton is teaching us, as was Paul, a belief in God is not antithetical to valuing science. Just because you value science doesn't mean you have to disbelieve in God. So Newton says, wait a second, God invented science. God created humanity. So we're able to accomplish things scientifically, reasonably, mathematically. It doesn't mean we don't believe in God. It means that we thank God for our scientific accomplishments. Atheists think that, well, we accomplish things. Let me pat myself on the back. And so, you know, Newton and other scientists say, no, 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 no. In fact, when you study the last 100 years of Nobel Prize winners, in the area of science, 70% of them were Christians. 7% of them were atheists. So don't let anybody suck you into an argument and say, oh, you can't believe in God if you're scientific. Just the opposite. Because I'm scientific, I believe in God. Because, you know, and, and by the way, let me give a little announcement. I got to step over here. 
That's why we're having this 10-week class to give you facts and data and practice how to be able to respond to people that ask you thorny questions. Does God exist? So you can't afford not to be there. Let me go back over here. That was somebody else. That was a station break. Station break. But scientists have discovered that we human beings are living on the right planet which has all the vital ingredients for us to survive. We're the right distance from the sun or else we'll burn up or freeze up for optimal life. We have the right atmospheric pressure for liquid water at our surface. The question must be asked, what did everything, why rather, why did, why did everything we need to exist come into being so perfectly? I must come back to Paul's argument on the existence of God. And so he uses that cosmological argument to say, wait a second, let's take a step back and ask ourselves fundamental questions. The orderliness of the universe, the uniqueness of the imprint of the DNA of people and of children from their parents. Don't you see then that there must be this great designer? Why make this polytheistic view? Why give, you know, this God, God over here of sun, God of moon, God of sexuality, God of this, God of love. Why do all that? Because if God is to parse himself out into many different forms, why? That God must be weak and fragile and small and, and, and without all power. And so Paul says, what you really want to understand is this, this great big God, the one and true God that you categorize as unknown. I want to tell you this God, this God who created all this world, he's knowable. So we see questions require answers. Do beliefs matter? Absolutely. Does God exist? Yeah. And I know I could go on that route for a longer period of time. But I will over the course of this year. So this is one of those annual sermons. But I come to this question. What does God want? So goes, well, what, what good is it to have a right theology but not right relationship? Believing in God is not enough. That's what Paul is bringing out. If God exists, what responsibility do we have towards him? I mean, certainly, as a child, there are responsibilities I have towards my parents. And God is greater than our parents. And so as, God's, as one of God's creations, I have a responsibility towards my creator. And I understand God is different than our parents. Our parents are flawed. They make mistakes as have I as a parent made my mistakes and sometimes made mistakes because I didn't even know any better. And so the idea is that God who's perfect never makes mistakes. We have greater obligation towards our creator than we do as children towards our parents or as our children towards us as parents. Verse 26 speaks to this point, to the question, what does God want? Verse 26 says, from one man, he, God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we're his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, 
but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So Paul is answering the question, what does God want? What does God want from you? He wants you to seek him. What does that mean? To pursue him in a focused, intentional manner. God wants you to reach out for him. What does that mean? This creator wants a relationship with you. That means that you are vitally important to God. He reaches out to you. He makes himself known to you and will make himself known to you as you reach out to him. Healthy relationships are built on honesty and obedience and spending time with one another. It's built on regard and respect and honor. And so what God is saying through Paul to the Athenians is saying, look, if you stop creating these iconic things out of your own mind that's flawed... If you start saying to God, God, who are you? Can you reveal yourself to me? Can you help me understand who you are? Scripture says, not only will you seek God and reach out to him, but you'll find him. God says, I, I can be found. To look hard for him amidst life's strange moments, even when God doesn't make sense, it can happen. I mean, I, many of you know my story. I was an atheist. I didn't believe in the existence of God. And so I remember when everything came to a head, I was empty, frustrated. And when I said, God, if you're real, change me. I didn't know I was praying. That night he changed me. I've been serving him for the past 36 years because of that experience. I remember being invited about 20 years ago to debate the head of the New York City Atheist Club on national TV. I didn't even know they had an atheist club. And they gave us a debate topic, you know, the, the role of prayer in the public school system. So I was so young, I, I didn't know any better. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And so it was with Ernie Anastas. It was called Talk New York. It was a, you know, it was a national program on cable. And so they sent this stretch limousine to pick me up from my office. I asked my wife, do you want to come with me? She said, yeah, I want to come. And so we're in a stretch limo, this long white limo. And so let me tell you, when somebody sends a stretch limo to you, just think of yourself as a turkey being basted. <laughs> They're putting butter on you because you're about to be slaughtered. <laughs> so I get to the studio and they put makeup on you and I'm in the green room. Ernie comes in, they, they, they take a picture of us. And so... You know, you're feeling good, but <laughs> I felt butter all over me, all over me. And so we go into the studio. The studio sat me about two, three hundred people. And I didn't know prior to that, never been in a TV studio at the time, at that time, I didn't know that they had prepped the audience to be combative and create problems. And so they prepped the audience. In fact, they got a bunch of law school students from NYU to sit there just to be antagonistic. And so I'm sitting there. And I was the only one representing my team. Team David Ireland, team Christian leader. I look over to my left, it was the president of the Atheist Club. To his left was the vice president. And to the vice president left on, the, on a large screen, was, you know, from a satellite dish from the state of Washington, was an attorney that represented the atheist. 
on my right, sitting there on, in front of this, uh, this console, was you know, tied into some internet. This is when the internet was brand new at that time. There's a guy sitting there, logged in to be able to pull down any data that we say to check it, fact check, right there to see if you're lying, you're misrepresenting truth, you're saying stuff. And then so the host was there. So, and they set it up. They said, we have Reverend Ireland here. We have so-and-so. And so, and so we're set up. And so they said, right before they're about to start, I jumped in real quick. I said, Ernie, I know that you have everything ready, but may I have one question? He said, go ahead, Reverend. I said, let me ask a question. If you're walking down a dark city road in New York City at 2 a.m., pitch dark, and you saw six big guys coming towards you, the shortest was 6'5", 350 pounds coming towards you, Will it make a difference if you knew they were coming from a Bible study? And when I said that, same response. They chuckled. I said, I got you. The presence of God changes a person's behavior. And that was downhill for the atheists at that point. <laughs> Just the one question. Questions have a way to get in people's mind. And the question demonstrated that they have an assumption. So does, does it matter? What does God want from us? He wants relationship from us. He wants us to seek him. And when we seek him, he says, you'll find me. Yeah. One of the pop culture stars, Kelsey Grammer, who's really, you know, caused audiences to laugh worldwide. He played the radio psychiatrist on the TV shows Cheers, as well as Frasier. This actor, off camera, he really bared his soul and a online interview with Fox News when he talked about the tragedy that he went through as, as, as a man. So he said, it started when I was a boy. My father passed away when I was so young. Shortly afterwards, my grandfather passed away. In a few years, my sister was attacked and killed. A couple, five years after that, my two half-brothers died in a scuba accident. And so Kelsey Grammer said, to deal with it, I turned to alcohol and drugs to cope and eventually served prison time for drunk driving violations in 1990. And then he said, at the end of my rope, I cried out to God, and I heard from him. And he said the message was, I'm not out to get you. I'm here to help. And that helped Kelsey Grammer, as he said. It helped me a lot. And he ended the interview by saying, as a Christian, we always fail because we can't become Christ. But I can try to at least emulate the best qualities, even if I may fall short. So I ask you the question, what is our responsibility towards God? Answer, God's call is to seek Him, to, to pursue Him, to, and to find Him. But He also calls us to repent. Repent, it's what Paul told the Athenians. He says, you know, you know, God wants you to do that. Repent means to turn around. It means to turn away from what you've been doing that's wrong and destructive and turn towards God. So this holy God says, I'm building a bridge for you to get free of the things that's been holding you back. That bridge is my son. My son who died for your sins, who paid a debt that you couldn't pay. And when you cross that bridge by inviting my son into your life, in essence, that bridge called repentance, when you 
you cross that bridge and you find yourself, you'll come into this relationship with me that's built on holiness and love. And you'll come into all of what you've been searching for. Your idols can't satisfy you. The emptiness of the things that you've created can't satisfy you. And so what Paul was telling them, you got to repent. It's an exchange. Your blindness for his sight. Your emptiness for his fullness. Your, your, your life that's devoid of peace for God's life that he wants to give to you that's full of peace and joy and fullness of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see that's what Paul was saying. And the scripture teaches us in verse 32, 33, 34 that many accepted Christ as their Savior that day in the Areopagus. And others walked away saying, we'd love to hear more about this. And so Paul built that bridge of relationship because he reasoned with them. This year, God's calling you to build some bridges. And it starts off with reasoning. When you build those bridges, powerful things can happen. And if you would just start off with loving people and opening up your life to give people access to your life, not just to your faith, but to your life, relationship with them, then you'll hear some people say, I want this Jesus that you talk about. And you'll hear others say, I'd love to hear more about this at another time. And some may walk away and say, I don't want to hear anything again. But you still would have built a bridge through relationship because you reasoned with them.